Now we continue in Luke's gospel by returning to the 11th chapter. Beginning to read at verse 5. I will tell you that I do plan to take one more small break in Luke very soon, actually next week. And then we will continue on in Luke for some time. Uh, Eventually we will conclude the book. But we're backpacking through, just like our VBS students will be doing. Um, But next week there's something pastorally upon my heart that I have wanted for a long while to preach, and I intend to do so, uh, God being my helper, next Lord's day. Will you pray with me before we read? Gracious, gracious God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father through Him, Blessed Holy Spirit, O Lord, hear our prayer, just as we have sung from Psalm 86, and just as Jesus teaches us in this text today. May through the mind the conscience be moved. May we be willing as your people to open our hearts and to say, search me and try me and show me if there be any wicked way within me that we may repent and turn from it, that we may earnestly desire communion with the living and true God, that it will be our chief desire to be in thy presence. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, who is the searcher of hearts, would search our hearts and consciences this day and grow us as believers, and that those in our midst who do not trust in Jesus Christ that they would find their consciences, not only their natural consciences, but their natural consciences renewed by grace, so that they may once again, once again, return unto thee. As Adam was unfallen, may they return to the last Adam and trust in him that they may be restored to more than Adam lost, but that was redeemed and purchased at the high price of Jesus' shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 5. This is the Word of God. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs." And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, 
will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, the version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke was given by Jesus at the request of one of his disciples who turned to the Lord and said, teach us to pray. And over these last weeks, that is prior to the Easter season, we have poured over the glorious preface to the Lord's Prayer, the petitions to hallow God's name, that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done, that we have our daily bread, that our sins be forgiven and temptation overcome. Powerful indeed are the petitions of the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of Luke's gospel. But the Lord is not finished with his instruction on prayer. He speaks now of the believer's attitude with which he should pray and of certain promises that God makes and encouragements for prayer and the empowerment of prayer. And so as we come to this text this morning, I want to to begin with this. First of all, the believer's attitude in prayer, the believer's attitude in prayer, holy earnestness, holy earnestness. Now, the Lord begins with, a, with an example of earnestness. A friend has come to visit, but the host has no bread, and the visitor has made a long journey and is hungry, and it is midnight. What does the host do? Well, he goes to another friend, and he explains his predicament. But the friend with bread does not welcome having his rest disturbed at midnight. Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give thee. And Jesus says, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. What is the point? The point is the Lord wants us to be fervent and constant in prayer before him. Just as this man in an emergency goes for a friend to a friend to borrow bread, so the Lord would have us come to him with a sense of urgency in our prayers. Not flip, not off the cuff, but a sense of earnestness and urgency. He is not saying that God is reluctant to answer your prayers as the man who was asleep was reluctant to get up. That's not the point. The point is that the man asking bread will not take no for an answer. That is, he will not cease being fervent in his request. He will rise and give him as many as he needs because of his persistence because of his importunity. As we read in Luke 18, 1, men ought always to pray and faint not. We do not trouble the Lord when we pray, beloved of God. He loves you. He wants you to come more than you want to come. He desires to hear your prayers more than you desire to offer them. He desires to answer your prayers more than you desire the answer. Indeed, all true prayer is decreed by God. 
But the Lord is pleased when we come with a fervent, constant faith in his promises. And that is the point that Jesus is teaching us. And what if the man had said, I knock on the door, it's midnight, I have this friend, and he's coming on a long journey, I do not have any bread for him. And what if the man had said, just go away, I'm, I'm asleep, I'm not going to help you. And he had said, okay, okay. And he had just stepped away. Well, I would say that the man lacked urgency to help his friend that was in need, wouldn't you? And what the Lord Jesus is teaching us is something about urgency in prayer. Does not the Bible tell us to come with boldness? Do we not read in the book of Hebrews that our risen, ascended Lord is our great high priest through whom we now come with boldness, yet reverently, to the throne of grace? Does not the Bible teach us to ask things of God? Does not the Bible teach us as believers to pray for one another and to ask for others who are in need? Matthew Henry said, We cannot come to God upon a more pleasing errand than when we come to him for grace to enable us to do good, to feed many with our lips, to entertain and edify those that come to us. And he adds, If importunity could prevail... Thus with a man who was angry at it, much more with a God who is infinitely more kind and ready to do good to us than we are to one another, and is not angry at our importunity, but accepts it, especially when it is for spiritual mercies that we importune. If he do not answer our prayers presently, yet he will in due time, if we continue to pray. And so I ask now, this question of ourselves. Are we earnest in our prayers? Are we urgent in our prayers? Does the heart show through in our prayers? Lord, I love you. I seek your glory. I pour out myself in prayer. I desire that your kingdom spread through the globe. God wants our hearts in it. Literally, where we read in verse Eight and it's variously translated, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, the ESV says, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You'll notice that it also translates it in the marginal reading, persistence. The King James uses the word importunity. Literally, it means his shamelessness. It is shameless persistence. I'm coming to God with no pride. I have none. I come to him with my hands extended in need. I'm shameless, Lord. (laughs) I have nothing, nothing to offer. I come to you, and I'm shameless in my prayers. Shameless persistence. That's what God is calling us to. And ultimately, we are seeking to know God in prayer. That is the chief end of our prayers. What can we do without him? Years ago, I remember reading uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' wonderful book, Preaching and Preachers. If you think that God may have called you to the ministry, that's a book that you need to be reading. Lloyd-Jones tells the story of Robert Bruce, that powerful preacher at the end of the 16th century, who was at this point with a group of preachers, and they were conferring, talking with one another, and they were deeply depressed. Their ministries were hotly persecuted. And the more they talked, the deeper their depression became. And then they tried to pray. Tried to pray is the operative language. Have you ever tried to pray? 
Bruce was so concerned and disturbed by their trying to pray, he was so disturbed in his spirit that he said that he would knock the Holy Spirit into them. Now, these are Presbyterian ministers. And he began to thump the table with his fists. And his fervency moved their hearts, and they began to pray in the Holy Spirit. They were fervent. They meant business. They believed the promise of God. Their depression lifted, and they were assured that their God would never leave nor forsake them, but would accomplish through their preaching and ministry his own sovereign will and purpose. And they went back to their Presbyterian ministries with new confidence. Why? Was it because of fist beating? Well, no. It was because of what the fist beating represented. Earnest, fervent, continuous, believing prayer to God. Now, I think you will agree that the Lord has tremendously blessed our congregation and ministry. Why not ask for more? How earnest and urgent are you in asking God's blessing upon our worship services and the preached word and the ministries of our church that reach out to others and our mission to the world? You know that passage in James 5, most of us are familiar with it, that speaks of the, the, the earnest and urgent prayers of Elijah. Literally in James 5, 17 and 18, it says that he prayed in prayer. He prayed in prayer may not, be, may not be a good English translation, but it really says something, doesn't it? He prayed in prayer, which means that one may pray without really praying. That tongue and heart should pray together. Because you see, people of God, the Lord does not want us as his people to be lukewarm in anything that we do for him. He wants your heart He wants a passionate soul for his glory. Lukewarmness is sadly contagious, as it was with those ministers, but so is zeal. And if you lack zeal, then perhaps a fatherly rebuke from the Lord is needed this morning through the preaching of the word, that you are not zealous, that you are not passionate, that you are not earnest. Perhaps once you were, but now you are not, and you need to repent. And so that is first. But dad, let me say this before we move on to the next thing. Fathers, heads of households, dads, your children need to hear you praying sincerely, fervently, earnestly, importunately, with shameless persistence. They need to hear you praying before the throne of grace in this way. And that will happen only when you pray that way privately. And I'm very concerned that our homes be God-centered, Christ-centered, and that our fathers lead the way in all of these things and heads of households. If you are praying that way privately, it will show in your prayers before your family. Indwell the Bible and then learn to turn the Bible into prayer and teach that to your children. All right, that's first. Urgency, earnestness. The second thing, however, we see in the text is our encouragement to pray, God's promise. And we find that promise in verses 9 and 10. And I, will, I tell you, ask and it will be given you. <clears throat> Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. We are called upon by our Lord to ask and to seek and to knock, to continue to press. Everyone that asketh receiveth. Now, do you value prayer? Because if you do, it will show because you're asking and seeking and knocking. And for what do you ask, pastor, you might say? For what should we be asking Well, remember the context of this is the context of the Lord's Prayer, which is the model for our praying. In whatever we pray, we are seeking in genuine prayer, looking back to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, that those things for which He has taught us to pray be accomplished, that His name be hallowed, that his kingdom spread, that his will be done. Those are the things that consume or should consume the prayer time and the prayer lives of the people of God. For these things, we should be importunate day and night. You know, in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, the Lord says that God's people should give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Do we begin to understand that kind of praying, that we give God no rest, so to speak, and we are earnest in our prayers before him? Does it even occur to us, does it occur to you, to pray for the extension of Christ's kingdom, importunately, earnestly, urgently, with passion in your heart and in your soul. God has promised to answer prayer for his glory, for the spread of his kingdom, the honoring of his name among his people, the forgiveness of sins. And we pray for the fulfillment of those things which God the Father has promised to his Son. Such as when the Father speaks to the Son in Psalm 2 and says, Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. For this do not hold your peace day and night. Indeed, learn to turn the Bible into your prayer book. Lord, I see a promise to your son. Prayer is asking for those things that are agreeable to your will. And so I'm praying the fulfillment of this promise that you have given to your son. Jeremiah 33.3 should be our watchword. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And so pray for the extension of the kingdom of God, that his will be done, that the Son be exalted in the earth. Well, you say, but pastor, these are dark times. Yes, and that's the reason we should be all the more urgently upon our knees, seeking God and praying and asking that his will be done on the earth. Isn't God, who is light, isn't his light greater than the darkness that surrounds us? Things have been dark before. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book in 1748 called An Humble Attempt. That's the short title. It's a prayer for united, it is a call for united extraordinary prayer in which he wanted to unite the prayer societies of Scotland and the prayer societies of New England praying for revival. And you know what happened when they prayed? God sent the great awakening. God sent the revival for which they prayed. God answered those importunate, shamelessly persistent prayers, God answered them. And young people, my understanding is 
that most of those prayer societies in Scotland were made up of youth. Wonderful truth, is it not? Much later, when William Carey went to India, this book of Jonathan Edwards, this humble attempt, this call to prayer, he took with him. The Edinburgh Review wrote, when Carey went, we see not the slightest prospect of success. We see much danger in making the attempt. But Carey and his brethren wrote, he who raised the Scottish and brutalized Britain to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus can raise these slaves to superstition and purify their hearts by faith and make them worshipers of the one God in spirit and in truth. That's praying and acting in faith. So we've seen the believer's attitude, holy earnestness, and we have seen our encouragement, God's promise. But there's a third thing about prayer that we see that the Lord Jesus teaches us, and it is the empowerment of prayer, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find that in verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We have a heavenly father who will hear his children's cry. Now, verse 11, I must tell you, there is another uh, translation. You find it in the authorized version, Geneva Bible, and so forth, because I think the text is better that underlies it. And it reads, if a son asks bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? So the question is this, do you fathers have a father's heart? If your son says, I'm hungry and need breakfast, would you give him a rock? Or for dinner, would you give him a snake instead of a fish? Or a scorpion in place of an egg? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Matthew says he will give good things to those who ask him. Your heavenly Father's heart yearns to give you the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not know this, When Charles Haddon Spurgeon would enter into his pulpit and he would climb the steps that would lead to the platform, he would pray on each step, I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't have so many steps, but every Sunday when I come up into this pulpit, you see, I'm weak, I have nothing. I pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And for this, we should ask, Jesus says. You see, he gives us directions that we should pray. The point is not that we do not already possess the Holy Spirit. The point is that we are asking for his presence to be at work in and among us. Do you think, do you think that you would perceive more of the work of the Holy Spirit within you? Perceive more communion with Christ through the blessed third person of the Trinity If you but asked, when is the last time you asked, Lord, give me the Holy Spirit's power and work in my life? 
have you asked? Your heavenly Father will give you, Jesus says. He will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. An old divine said, when God's children ask for the Spirit, they do, in effect, ask for bread, for the Spirit is the staff of life. Nay, he is the author of the soul's life. And so, for what are we praying when we when we are dependent upon this promise, Lord, you have promised the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I'm asking, for what are we praying? Well, we are praying, Father, give me the Spirit's work in my heart to remove lust. Give me a tender and teachable heart. Open my conscience to your word. Give me the Holy Spirit to help me love the truth. Give me the Spirit's power to illumine the Bible and to produce fruit in my life and to comfort me and guide me and to grow me in grace and to make me to be more like Christ. Give me the power of the Spirit in my life to show me my sin, to lead me to confession. Give me the Holy Spirit in my life to placard before my eyes Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord so that I'm watchful in my life. Give me the Holy Spirit to lift my heart to heaven through the ascended high priest, Jesus Christ. Give me the Holy Spirit to grant me assurance that my sins are forgiven. Give me the Holy Spirit's power that I might love Christ more and that I might love others as I ought. Give me the Holy Spirit to make me wise. Give me the Spirit's power to make me prayerful. Give me the Holy Spirit to make me aware of temptation and to flee from evil and to refresh me with his presence and to create in me a new heart and to grant me real prayer and life and quicken me and humble me and grant me the Spirit of God to remove my coldness of heart and give me a heart that pulses with praise for thee. Give me the Holy Spirit to help me never to grieve you. Give me the Holy Spirit's work to apply Christ's blood to my conscience. Give me the Holy Spirit to continue to draw me home. And on and on and on we could go. Never, never do anything without prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to show you your need and to enable you. And so this and more... We ask when we ask our Heavenly Father who loves us and who has proven it in the cross, when we ask our Heavenly Father for bread, for the Spirit of God to be operative in my life. God will never give evil. He takes us through evil, fallen circumstances, but He never gives to us that which is not good as his children. God, your Father, gives the work of the Holy Spirit. And through Christ, God has taken out adoption papers. And he now says, my child, draw from all my riches. Christian, if your spiritual pulse beat is weak, you have no one to blame but yourself. Because God, in the psalm that was read by Pastor McDonald this morning, the 81st, says to his people, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. And God keeps his word. And he will never have to eat his words, as we say. The problem is not with God, but with us. And for some of you, 
For some of you, your prayer lives are not what they ought to be, whose ever is, but you're not striving for it, you're not growing. Perhaps you used to pray mightily and earnestly, but not now. For some of you, the problem is there's a sin in your life and you need to confess it. There's some husband here, and the reason that your prayer life is hindered is because you don't love your wife as you ought. And in 1 Peter 3, we're pointedly told by the Lord that if we do not treat our wives with the respect they deserve and the love that should be offered to them, we are told specifically your prayers will be hindered. For some of you, it's another sin, something you're clinging to, you don't want to get rid of, something in your life that you, you cherish, and your prayer life is hindered. William Perkins, who was the father of the English Puritans, tells of a man who had uh, stolen a sheep, and yet he went on daily with his devotions, but he had no rest until he confessed it because the beast was ever in the way. There's something in the way, isn't there, with someone here, perhaps many of us here, and you need to confess it so that you can know again the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit and the freedom that comes from the work of the Spirit of God in your life. I think there's another problem too. I think sometimes, even though God tells us these things in His Word, and we are to submit our lives to His to his word, our thoughts, our attitudes, our hearts, our passions, we simply don't believe him. It is sheer unbelief. I've heard Dr. Beakey, Joel Beakey, tell on a couple of occasions in different settings this, um, this very interesting account that evidently really happened. There was a church, and right next to the church there was a tavern. And uh, the tavern was a problem for the church because... Um, uh, on Saturday nights in particular, uh, men would come out of the tavern and they would, they would leave their refuse, if you get my meaning, uh, ugly things and their bottles and their trash, and evidently no amount of talking did any good, and so the pastor one day stood before his congregation and said, we need to pray about this and just ask the Lord to, to handle it. We, we've done everything we can. And so they began to pray that the Lord would do something about this problem because it was a huge problem. You imagine your your visitors coming and what they might have to step over and what deacons might have to remove. And so they began to pray and ask the Lord to deal with the problem. Well, the Lord sent a tornado and uh, blew the tavern off the face of the map. The church, however, was fine. Well, the tavern owner took the church to court I really happened. And these people prayed to the Lord to destroy my tavern, which of course isn't what they prayed, but they said, Lord, whatever you need to do to handle the problem. So the judge said, this is, this is uh, really, really unusual. Let me hear more. Well, they, they prayed that my tavern would be destroyed. The Christian said, we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. And so the judge said, this is the most unusual case that's ever been before me. The unbeliever believes in prayer and the Christians don't. (laughs) Do you believe when you pray that you're just praying into some black hole? Or do you believe that God answers prayer? If you believe he answers prayer, then you're going to be fervent in your prayers. 
Now, you hear me talk a lot about the Puritans. Why? Because they were the greatest theologians that ever walked. They were the most godly men that have ever walked the globe. They were the most powerful preachers. I would be a fool indeed as a minister to ignore them and not to bring the fruit of my labor and reading to you. And you should be reading them too, I commend. But I ask myself the question, why were they so powerful in the pulpit? Why? And the answer to which I come back time and time again, they knew how to pray. And you know what? Many of their congregations knew how to pray for them. What might God do for us here if we but earnestly, importunately ask? Now I want to bring some conclusions. Let me give you maybe three. The first conclusion is this, even even if we had no promises, as we do in this text, we should delight to pray. The Christian simply delights in God's sanctifying presence. Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy home, even of thy holy temple. We just want to be near our Heavenly Father, to warm the soul by the fire of His love, as someone wrote. It is called in the Bible, delighting in God. Psalm 37, 4, delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thy heart. And that is because your heart, your heart, and God's, when you delight in Him, your heart and God's become more one. And then you begin to pray for those things that really are according to his will. And those things that delight his heart begin to delight your heart. But we do have promises. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, They are yea and amen in Christ. These promises are made in and through Christ. They have come to us at the high price of the blood of Christ. And so on the basis of the promises of this text, I want to say to you, this is the second conclusion I want to bring, The call to fervent, importunate, powerful prayer is a call that God extends to every one of his children here this morning, every one of you, to me, to you. You see, your prayers do not make God willing. He was willing before you asked. Earnestness shows that you believe. It shows that we really desire it. The man needs food. The man needs help. Yes, it's midnight, but it was said of Guge, one of the great preachers of the past, he began when he was a young person reading 15 chapters of Scripture a day, and he continued it all of his life. It made him a prayer warrior. In prayer, he was pertinent, judicious, spiritual, seasonable, accompanied with faith and fervor like a true son of Jacob wrestling with tears and supplications. And he studied much to magnify Christ and to base himself. That's prayer. John Bradford, the English reformer who was burned at the stake, said, I never rise from my knees until I have prayed the matter through. Do you even know what that means? Some of you do. To pray it through, as the old theologians called it. You say, well, I'm rusty. Well, Carnock said, rusty grace is a rusty key will not unlock. 
Dull and lumpish prayer doth not reach God and therefore cannot expect an answer. Such desires are as arrows that sink down at our feet. There's no force to carry them to heaven. But Thomas Watson said, real prayer is a bomb which will make heaven's gates fly open. So when you pray, your, your prayers are being put at the, the very gates of heaven. And you pray earnestly and sincerely and you really believe. And they're bombs that blow the gates open so that the blessing can pour out. That's what prayer is. Now, there's a verse, write it down, please. Isaiah 64, 7. I won't turn to it, but it's extremely important. Isaiah 64, 7. God complains against Israel. And do you know what his complaint in Isaiah 64, 7 is? He complains that his people have not stirred themselves up to take hold of him. You as a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, are responsible this morning to take this sermon and to stir yourself up to take hold of God and of his promises. And so let's repent and grow and improve and pray with every member of the Trinity in mind. And if this will not make you fervent, I don't know what will. And Paul says in Romans 11, 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That word fervent in spirit means seething hot in spirit. That's what he wants of you, a seething hot spirit. Revelation 3, 19, repent and be zealous. So the great question is this morning, what will you do with this sermon? I know, I hope I'm wrong, what some of you will do with this sermon. You don't care. If you really don't care, you don't know Christ. But Christians can become careless and backslidden. And somebody's going to walk out, they'll never think about it again. You know, this is a huge problem. We need a high biblical view of the preached word here. You take the sermon and you continue to meditate upon it day in and day out, and you do it. You don't just hear it, walk out the door and forget it. God has not ordained preaching so that you forget it. A couple comes to me and I sit down with them and I, I, I offer counsel. We open the Bible. It, it makes a difference. They begin to apply it. Maybe gently, I've only done this on rare occasion, maybe gently I say, you know, I preached on that about a month ago, and you were there. Oh, I don't remember. Every Lord's Day, you're being counseled from the pulpit. I'm not saying it's, there are times surely you need to sit down with your pastor or a biblical counselor, don't get me wrong. But if preaching will go up in your estimation, counseling will go down in your heart's needs because you're receiving it every week. So what are you going to do with the sermon, child of God? Is it going to change you? But I need to finish. Third third thing, third conclusion, there is a pre prerequisite for prayer. And that prerequisite is you have to have a mediator. You have to have Christ who 
takes your imperfect prayers and wraps them in his own perfection and merit and presents them perfectly to the Father so that they are perfectly heard and perfectly answered. You must have a mediator. And someone here has never really prayed because you have never really prayed that first prayer that is necessary. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so I called you to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said somewhere there's a place in England called St. Cross Hospital where any passerby could come and get bread. Spurgeon said Jesus Christ, in his love for sinners, has built a St. Cross Hospital where any hungry sinner may knock and receive bread. And so I call upon you, don't be bashful. He offers to you bread, the bread of life. He offers to you himself. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I am the bread of life. Come, take, and eat. Come to Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.